Famished Craving, Reflections on the Role Fame Has Played in Human Affairs, narrated by Gil Bailey and produced by the Cornerstone Forum, Part 7. One of the band's, still reading from the article, one of the band's three drummers, by the way, there were, there were pictures, that, I'm not scandalizing you with the pictures, pictures came with this story, and it's, you know, people with very little clothes on, carrying on, band members included, and the band members are both male and female. One of the band's three drummers, I say that because I don't know whether this is, not that it matters, uh, one of the band's three drummers says, interaction is at the heart of their live shows. Comparing it to, quote, a drug, the drummer says, it's an exchange of energy between the crowd and the band. Now, comparing it to a drug, when Marx said religion is the opiate of the people, he was right. It's not so true. It can be true of Christian religion. If Christianity allows this sort of thing, fine. But it really applies to the old sacred system. It is, in fact, the opiate of the people. It is, in fact, the, the, generate, the, the, the engine that generates the myth. So the drummer says, this is like a drug. Well, what does a drug do? Well, okay, so continuing. The crowd, no, so, so the, the, the article describes how the crowd gets there and begins to work up its enthusiasm, its expectation for when the band will enter, and the band enters in a very dramatic way. The crowd in the warehouse waited as the lights were doused, roaring with expectation. Now, I want to go back at, to something here. I should have brought it up earlier, but I thought the better of it, and now <laughs> it would have been better if we had, really. And that is when, when the Times correspondent interviewed the, the uh, Islamic Jihad leader who was organizing these uh, suicide missions, at the very end she said to him, you seem to be satisfied. And he said, "This, it is satisfying. And our, it's, our, it, our people are satisfied by it. It satisfies our people. And I just want to take that word satisfaction. It's absolutely key for understanding things. You know, when Mick Jagger's most famous song is, I Can't Get No Satisfaction, we have to understand that song in terms of the whole Dionysian thing. Our problem is that we only read that lyric in terms of the carnivalesque stage of the Dionysian, and therefore we think it has to do with sexual satisfaction. But as Mick Jagger and a whole lot of other people have shown, it doesn't, because if there's anything that has stood in the way of sexual satisfaction, it has been wiped out, you see. The idea that something is... Keep the idea that my sexual dissatisfaction is due to some taboo has been disproven because the taboos have, have disappeared and as they have disappeared, the dissatisfaction has increased. Now the question is, is there something that will give satisfaction to that frenzy, to that bitterness and self-loathing? Is there something that will give satisfaction to it? And I would go back to the 
what the Islamic uh, jihad leader says, and that is violence. It won't, but nevertheless, this was a crowd roaring with expectation. What, what's the expectation? The expectation is that they will get satisfaction. And what does that mean? Well, because they're caught up in the carnivalesque stage of it, they would all interpret that in sexual terms. But as the Dionysian thing shifts into its sacrificial stage, that, that need for satisfaction turns violent. And that's what we've got to see. So, it said they were roaring with expectation. Then from the back of the hall, a cacophony of whistles, pounding drums, and screaming distortion announced crash worship's arrival. Reaching the stage, crash worship launched into a relentless tattoo of rhythmic noise. Men and women in various states of undress undulated beside drums as parabolic bowls of fire were brought into the crowd. Dancers circled them, stomping and swaying and leaping over the flames, while pulsing strobe lights fragmented their movements into snapshots. I mean, this is... I don't like to read this stuff to you. I feel terrible. when After a session like this and I've read something, I, I feel terrible. I do. But I, I feel that we need to see what this is. Next paragraph. By now the band was... Now this is... Again, I want to use this to see something. By now the band was hidden behind a veil of smoke and spray. Were they on stage? In the audience, without a visual reference, the shrieking distortion, amplified roars, and inescapable drums seem to be everywhere at once. Now, this is really critical for understanding. I mean, this is, a, this is like reading Euripides. This is critical for understanding what we have to understand, and that is what it looks like when it shifts from the carnivalesque to the sacrificial, the frenzy that happens at that shift. And in the Bakke, it happens when suddenly Dionysus disappears. There's this absolute frenzy, and he's the choreographer of it, and then he disappears. And then he points to Pentheus, and pretty soon Pentheus is killed. And it's that, it's that frenzy, that, uh, the supreme crisis of undifferentiation, when the crowd no longer has a focus, that the polarization happens very quickly. It finds a new focus. And, and that shift of the focus from the Dionysian revel leader to the victim happens when the revel leader disappears, the crowd falls into its, its complete crisis and polarizes and then finds its victim, which obviously didn't happen in this story, else it would have been on the front page of the major newspaper rather than where it was. Nevertheless, the, the structure is there. Okay, so then the last paragraph that I'll quote to you is this. It was the rave of raves, an electric exorcism, in which band and audience spewed, purged, and stomped away their demons. Shitty jobs, lousy love lives, whatever. Now just think about that an electric exorcism in which the band and audience spewed, 
purged and stomped away their demons. Shitty jobs, lousy love lives, whatever. Now, how long will it be before the purging and the stomping and the exorcising becomes violent? And then, finally, this from one of the band members. Quote, The best thing that ever happens to me at a show is when I transcend my inhibitions. End quote. <laughs> what's, the, what's the myth behind that? The myth behind that is freedom is license. And the myth behind that is my dissatisfaction has to do with inhibitions. And that if I could get rid of those inhibitions, I could get satisfaction. Think about it. You see, if I could just get rid of these inhibitions, I could get satisfaction because, as Mick Jagger tells us, the problem is we can't get no satisfaction. There are two questions I would ask about this. First of all, he says this thing about when I transcend my inhibitions. How many syllogistic steps would it be before, if we continued this interview with this band member, before he would say, the problem, of course, is Christianity? You see, how many steps in the process would it be? Two, three at the most. Wouldn't you say? It, you know, instantly. When he uses that word inhibitions, what's he talking about? He's talking about the moral effect of the biblical tradition. You see what I mean? And he'll tell you that. All you have to do is ask him one more question, maybe two, and he'll tell you that explicitly. The problem is Christianity. There's not a doubt. We all know that because we've seen it a thousand times. That's one point to note. He's Nietzschean. He's saying just what Nietzsche said. The choice is going to be Dionysus or Christ. You can't have them both. If you want, if you want to revive the sacred in, in, in the Western world, you're going to have to do it Outside the Christian purview, the, the, the original way of doing it is Dionysus, and you can't do it as long as the Christian tradition is in any way in play in the process. So that's one thing to say. The other thing to say is, what's implicit here is, if I got rid of these inhibitions, I could get satisfaction, which again, we make the mistake of reading in terms of its carnivalesque stage. We think it has to do with sexuality. But as soon as it enters its sacrificial stage, it has to do with violence. It has to do with scapegoating. And when Mick Jagger says, I can't get those satisfaction, fundamentally, that's going to be the problem. So I would say, for example, that Hamlet felt hemmed in by Christian inhibitions just as the crash worship band member feels. Hamlet couldn't get no satisfaction. He, his inhibitions kept him from two things. It kept him from killing Claudius because he found Claudius in the chapel and it was clearly Christian. This is Shakespeare's way of saying it's clearly Christian inhibitions that keep him from killing Claudius. And then there were other inhibitions. Early in the play, in his first big soliloquy, Hamlet says, Oh, that the everlasting had not fixed its canon against self-slaughter. So, what we have here is this itch to get satisfaction which can turn on oneself. 
the self-loathing, if we can't get it out onto somebody else and run it out, expel it, stomp it away, exorcise it, it'll come back on us. We can't get no satisfaction. That's the world we live in. There's one other stage in this process I just want to talk about, and I'll try to do it as quickly as I can. One of the important enlightenment projects was what we call the individual. There's no such thing. The problem is it didn't, it, it wasn't plausible. We are not individuals. We are part of a matrix, a social matrix, always. We are relationships. So the idea of an autonomous individuality was implausible, but it, it came up out of the Enlightenment. And this is also dying, but I want to I talk about it a little bit before, uh, we, before we close today, because it, it completes the survey of things that are falling apart as a result of the collapse of, of, uh, of the Enlightenment. This seems like I'm changing course here. What I'm saying is I'm bringing it closer to home because you and I are not in an Islamic uh, fundamentalist environment. We're, we're not in Israel. We're not in Germany. We're not in the, in the warehouse di district of San Francisco. We're, we're living in the world where what's collapsing is individuality. The old the, the kind of enlightenment idea of the individual is collapsing, and we have to understand it because... If we understood it, we would be able then to understand chapter 15 of the Gospel of John better. The thing about individuality, and this will bring us back to Browdy's book on fame, the thing about individuality, you could say, many people say, well, this whole myth of the individual began with Rousseau. I mean, to some extent that's true. Um, but what's noticeable about Rousseau is that he displayed his individuality. That is to say, Individuality, as soon as it emerged in the Western world, became uh, ostentatious individuality, which is a contradiction in terms, you see, because it need that, the individuality that, that, that became so fashionable in a way in the 18th and 19th century and in our time was an individuality that required observers, you see, in order for it to... That's why uh, Rousseau is always posing as this recluse but he's always posing in public as a recluse. So it's, it's ostentatious individuality. Uh, Browdy quotes from a, from a book uh, on, on suicide written by a man named Alvarez. Who, and in there, he, he, Alvarez quotes from a novelist who, said, uh, who had been suicidal in her youth, and she said, when I am alone, I stop believing I exist. As more and more people rode the myth of autonomous individuality out of town, like the Lone Ranger or Shane, the more the need arose to put that individuality on display. For only by becoming the observed of all observers could the individual experience acquire a semblance of ontological substantiality. You see, that's what substitutes for ont real ontological moorings is the observation of others. I must be real if all these people look at me approvingly or if I'm desperate enough, even disapprovingly, as long as they're looking at me. You see what I'm saying? That, that's the false form of ontology in our world. So the, I want to notice a few stages in this process. One is individuality became ostentatious individuality, almost instantly, disproving its fundamental premises. Secondly, there came about the democratization of ostentatious individuality. 
That is, that is to say, resentment about those who were enjoying it at the expense of those of us who were just stuck in the audience. And so the audience began to clamor. The audience began to say, hey, I want a little, I want on stage myself. I want to get up there myself. And finally, we got to the place where Andy Warhol says, yeah, sure, everybody, 15 minutes. You see, it's, it's the democratization of this, the leveling of everything, so that we don't have any hierarchies where some people are on stage and some people are in the audience. We're everywhere. Now, remember, just, just to get a little flashback, go back to the warehouse in San Francisco where they couldn't tell whether the band was on stage or in the audience. The crisis begins right there. Am I on stage? Am I in the audience? Well, I'm this, I'm that. The whole thing begins to look crazy. I'm not doing justice to this because I'm trying to rush it along. But the democratization of ostentatious individuality is, uh, is part of the modern craziness. There was a, uh, in the New Yorker, there was a review of Neil, Neil Gabler's biography of Walter Winchell, you know. Uh, and which Winchell was very, very famous, and uh, and the reviewer Harold Brodke follows Gabler's analysis of how this how this fame worked out. And Brodke says, "quote Modern celebrity may have been invented in Paris during the French Revolution, with the sudden importance of the other than aristocrat." That is to say, suddenly we're not going to have it a set piece where some are on stage and some are just in the audience clapping, everybody wants a piece of it. Or as James Joyce says, here comes everybody. See? Everybody, oh, Andy Warhol, everybody gets their 15 minutes of it. So that's the second thing. The third thing, so we have individuality becomes ostentatious, ostentatious individuality becomes democratic, and thirdly, which is all part of this, I suppose, is that the audience, which consists of off-duty off aspirants for an audience of their own, began to make more impertinent demands on those on stage. The audience became surly. And so you get the National Enquirer, People Magazine, <laughs> you see what I'm saying? All that crazy talk show stuff. The audience begins to turn a little surly and say, we're not getting satisfaction. Browdy says this, fame had ceased talking about the even at, even in the 19th century, he says, quote, fame had ceased to be the possession of particular individuals or classes and had become instead a potential attribute of every human being that needed only to be brought out in, in the open for all to applaud its presence. The audience was no longer the servant of the visually powerful, but becoming at least their equal partner in the creation of fame. And not only that, but as I say, it was becoming surly. The audience was, now that's Browdy, now I just want to reflect on it for a second. The audience was growing irritable and more demanding, inching its way toward the stage, you might say, and wanting some kind of satisfaction that it could not get for the same reason that neither Hamlet nor Mick Jagger could get it, namely, the Christian inhibitions against revenge, sacrifice, and self-slaughter. Browdy uh, comments on, these, on this situation when he says the following, talking about artistic fame in 20th century America. If you didn't keep producing, your status as an artist could be taken away. To be on stage was to wonder what to do for an encore. 
There the professional assertion was met with the audience response. What have you done recently? In other words, what I'm trying to see here is the question of the audience satisfaction is the audience is growing, begins with adulation, applause, you're great, and so on. And then the audience begins to say, begins to grow irritable. And that's why, and then it starts to replace the, its, its idol in very quick succession. Get rid of them. This, well, we liked him, but that was, you know, that was last year. That was last month. Let's have a new one. Let's, you see, and what is that but dissatisfaction with the process? And then the question is, how, does, how do we experience satisfaction? And the, another aspect of this is that the famous themselves were suffering from the ravages of fame. In Browdy's book, he says, Alexander the Great was the first famous man in history. And the next sentence in his book is, quote, nothing was ever enough for him, end quote. Now, is there a link between the fact that he was the first famous man in history and that nothing was ever enough for him? The false ontology leads to desperation. Augustine said, we are restless until we rest in thee. To God, Augustine said, we are restless until we rest in thee. And that kind of restlessness is exacerbated by the false ontology of fame. Alexander the Great was the first famous man in history, and then the next sentence, quote, nothing was ever enough for him. Can't get no satisfaction. The democratization of fame means that the existential restlessness that the world's first famous person used as the engine for his military and imperial conquest festers in those who have neither the interest in nor the aptitude for such grandiose enterprises. The title of one of Hemingway's collection of short stories is Winner Take Nothing. Here's what Brodkey says about Walter Winchell, who was, according to the, his biographer, uh, second only to Roosevelt in terms of fame, fame in his day. Quote, he was extraordinarily public, as visible and audible as President Roosevelt. Pretty much at the height of his fame, he began to crack up bit by bit. And bit by bit, he sneaked off the stage into near oblivion as a rich, somewhat nutty, old guy Jewish businessman with no special role in history. You know the type, unclear about who they are and what they did. I know I'm mixing all these things together, but it's because I'm trying to go quickly. Brodkey in this article on Winchell finally says, the rest of his life consists of his hanging on without much in the way of fire or desperation visible until he wound up, in Gabler's words, quote, a ranting King Lear haunting the stork club. Now, just in terms of marvelous symbolism, I mean, if you think of the Stork Club as a, as a symbol, a Stork Club was just this fashionable hangout, but if you think of the Stork Club as a symbol for the need for rebirth of some kind. So anyway, a ranting King Lear haunting the Stork Club. All I'm saying is individuality becomes ostentatious individuality, becomes democratized ostentatious individuality, and, and how it creates both in the famous one and in the audience a dissatisfaction with the system because it's ontologically unfounded. It's false. It's the false ontology. 
and the fact that it's false ontology begins to have its effect on both the famous one and the crowd. And, and this, this irritability, this, this blending of, uh, of interest and contempt, you see. Now, it finds a particularly gross expression in the, in the wild Dionysian rock concerts, but it, it, it finds another expression in much more conventional settings. So, Brodke ends his article about Winchell by saying he railed at fate, by fate he means fame, he railed at fate, fought it, and won it for a while, and of course he lost in the end, and it broke him. And the last line in this review by Brodke is, it's practically everyone's story. That's his way of saying what Joyce said when he said, here comes everybody, and what Andy Warhol said when everybody, and he says everybody gets 15 minutes. Uh, and the reason that everybody gets 15 minutes is because it takes a, about 15 minutes for the crowd to be, become dissatisfied with it these days. That's, what, that's what's behind, behind Andy Warhol's observation. He's not saying everybody, it's dem democratic for any other reason. It's just that the, the level of dissatisfaction with that system is growing and growing and growing. Can't get no satisfaction. Well, if we understood that anthropologically, we'd realize that we're sitting on a time bomb. I'm going to tell you a joke. So, What might happen if someone were to have the conventional cultural supports taken away without undergoing a conversion? Well, culture focuses our mimetic fascination on something transcendent. Sometimes it's idolatrous, sometimes it's a false transcendent, but nevertheless it focuses it on something. The law, the temple, the cult, of whatever. Without that focus, we begin to grow intensely fascinated with each other, and we begin to desire to be the fascinating object of others' interest. In other words, you get the whole problem of the modern crisis, which, which is a false ontology based on other people's observations of me and my observations of other people, rather than the ontology which is represented by the vine and branches in John 15. I just want to read you this joke. And I think it's a Pfeiffer cartoon, but I, I, I'm not sure. And it just shows this high school kid standing there going to the six frames. And here they are. Ever since I was a little kid, I didn't want to be me. I wanted to be Billy Whittleton. Billy Whittleton didn't even like me. I walked like he walked. I talked like he talked. I signed up for the high school he signed up for which was when Billy Whittleton changed. He began to hang around Herbie Vandeman. He walked like Herbie Vandeman. He talked like Herbie Vandeman. He mixed me up. I began to walk and talk like Billy Whittleton, walking and talking like Herbie Vandeman. And then it dawned on me that Herbie Vandeman walked and talked like Joey Haverlin. Joey Haverlin walked and talked like Corky Sabinson. So here I am, walking and talking, like Billy Whittleton's imitation of Herbie Vandeman's version of Joey Haverland's trying to walk and talk like Corky Sabinson. And who do you think Corky Sabinson is always walking and talking like? Of all people, dopey Kenny Wellington, that little pest who walks and talks like me. <laughs> One of the things you have to notice about this and ask yourself, why is it 
that the character in this cartoon wants to emulate the one character who doesn't like him? Or why is it that the character who doesn't like him is the character he's imitating? And why is it the one character he doesn't want to imitate is the character who likes him? I'll, I'll just make a long story short. If you, if you teased out all the strains of that, you would arrive at the same problem we've been talking about earlier, which is, I can't get no satisfaction. That whole system of internal, what Gerard calls internal mediation, is inevitably leading towards resentment and a building of resentment and a deconstruction of real subjectivity. And that's what, the God, that's what God, uh, John's chapter 15 is all about, I think, at the ontological level. Anyway, I, it's too quick. I'm doing it too quick. What I want to do is end with something good. I want to try to repent. Billy Whittleton, Herbie Vandeman, Joey Haverland, Corky Sabinson, Dopey Kenny Wellington, that's, a, that's a, a system of mediation which is going to produce resentment, irritability, and ultimately the determination to get satisfaction in the old way, which is sacrificial. The old way of keeping modeling relationships from turning into this resentment, which would finally be a, de a, a demand for satisfaction at the sacrificial level, the old way was hierarchy. So the question is, in a world without hierarchy, how can modeling relationships keep from becoming internally mediated ones, to use the Girardian lingo, which is this Herbie Vandeman, Corky Savinson business? I would say the answer is, if we recognize in those whom we emulate an effort to emulate either Christ or still others whose ultimate model is Christ, then our non-hierarchical relationships with those whom we emulate will have a transcendent element in them without in any way depriving those relationships of their human intimacy. I think we have a, a recipe, a, a symbol for the way in which our, our non-hierarchical relationships can become salvific, and that is when we emulate those who are either emulating Christ or emulating others who are. Last week I shared with you this cartoon. Did I share with you the cartoon? The Jules Pfeiffer cartoon. My friend who sent it to me since told me that cartoon came out in the 50s, the late 50s. Now you have to say hats off uh, to those who could see this thing in the late 50s like that. I mean, it's always been there, you know, but still, to see it enough to... It's one of these things, the whole mimetic problem is one of these things where we're all so familiar with it that when we see it, we're amazed that we didn't see it before. So, But still in all, one has to say, in the, in the 50s, to see it uh, like that is pretty good. I mention that because... Here's something that the novelist Walker Percy wrote in 1957, roughly about the same time Jules Pfeiffer was coming up with that cartoon. And they don't seem to be related, but my point is they're related. Percy said, God is absent. He, first of all, he quotes uh, Johann Christian Holderlin, the German poet. God is absent, said Holderlin, 
God is dead, said Nietzsche. This means one of two things, says Walker Percy. Either we have outgrown monotheism and good riddance, or modern man is estranged from being. Now, you know, this whole thing I'm doing has to do with ontology. This may, being estranged from being is a way of talking about the ontological, the lack of ontological density, the loss of ontological moorings. It's the same thing. He's talking about the loss of ontological moorings. So either we have outgrown monotheism good riddance or modern man is estranged from being, from his own being, from the being of other creatures in the world and from transcendent being. He has lost something. What? He does not know. He knows only that he is sick unto death with the loss of it. End quote. So we are sick unto death with the loss of it. There's a little hint here of the nihilism towards which this loss finally leads. And he says we are estranged from being, from uh, modern man is estranged from being, from his own being, which reminds me of something that Gabriel Marcel says in his book On the Mystery of Being. He says, uh, he says, it's my, it, he says, what I'm, what I need, what I'm lost without, is my, is not my being, but my being. <laughs> you see, mm-hmm. italicized, not my being, but my being. And, the, and to shift the emphasis is to throw the whole thing into, and to tilt. And you could say from the Judeo-Christian tradition, Judeo-Christian perspective, that the source of that being that is transcendent being, is a relationship to the transcendent being, or to use the biblical idiom, the relationship to the God who, who uh, introduced himself to Moses as I am who am. In other words, being itself, the source of all being. I am who am means the source of all being. The introduction to the Gospel of John, uh, the prologue to the Gospel of John says, says, all things that came to be came to be through him. And I think we have to read that not just in terms of creation, but in terms of ontological uh, actuality. The the experience. How do Gabriel Marcel says? How do we move from existence to being? This is the ultimate question. How do we move from existence to being? And uh, the biblical tradition says, "Come to know the God who who introduces Himself to Moses as I am, who am. I am the source of being." Okay. Well. There, there you have sort of two ends of the spectrum. What I wanted, the reason I wanted to connect uh, Jules Pfeiffer and Walker Percy is because Percy sees the loss of being as the loss of this ontological grounding in the transcendent God. And Jules Pfeiffer sees it as, he sees the result of it. The result of it is in this, is what Girard calls internal mediation. We are, in the, in the biblical sense of things, we are made in the image and likeness of God. We're, our task is to imitate God. 
and the and the and uh, the that imitation always requires mediation. I guess I should probably even get into this. Maybe in the old the old dispensation, the old covenant, if you will, the mediating structures were were uh, temple, law, sacrifice, etc. And in the Christian dispensation, the mediating source is Christ himself, a person. The old covenant, the, the second commandment prevailed, which is you cannot have any graven image. So you cannot, you cannot have a likeness, a representation. You must have these other things that are simply a, a gesture in that direction. Uh, so anyway, the point is that um, in Christian, in the Christian tradition, Jesus represents a a mediating a mediator between us and the God uh, whom He incarnates and uh, int- knows intimately enough to call His Father. Okay. Without that, though, without that, we are we are unavoidably imitative creatures. And as soon as we don't have some kind of transcendent focus for our imitation, as soon as it's it, that's lost, we lose the ontological mores and we and we uh, erode them all the more by imitating each other, just like the Jules Pfeiffer cartoon, or like the thing that I I'll go back to it again just to to. Uh, bring it back up the thing the marvelous scene in Virginia Woolf's The Waves when Neville looks up it, she, he decides to ignore the mediator who is the who's the chaplain and the headmaster of the school who's sitting who's in chapel preaching and praying and Neville is sick of it he's not going to have anything to do with that anymore so he lowers his eyes and looks down the row and sees Percival this very interesting classmate of his and he and Neville's, there's a homosexual interest, but that's secondary to the very, to the to the fact of internal mediation. And I, just to maybe bring out a few more things about that passage in Virginia Woolf, he's, uh, Neville says, "I will now lean sideways as if to scratch my thigh, so I shall see Percival." Now, right away, what does that first sentence say? The first sentence says, "There's." dissembling going on. I will pretend to scratch my thigh so that this whole operation, nobody will catch me at it. And this is the modern, where as soon as we get into internal mediation, we don't want to be caught at it. We don't want anybody to notice we're imitating or idolizing or something because that would, the game would be up in a way. And then he says, so I see Parsifal. There he sits, upright among the smaller fry. Now, every, sen- every sentence, I've been over this a thousand times, but I, there are always things. As soon as transcendence is lost, everything is flat. Everything is, is, is uh, homogenized. And so any little tiny difference will be seized upon in order to leverage that figure above the others 
either as oneself or as somebody else so that the process of imitation can proceed. Others can imitate me or I can imitate somebody else. But no one, no one wants to imitate somebody who's just like everybody else. So the little game of fi- trying to find some little thing that's imitatable. This is like Donovan Leash in that thing I quoted a few weeks ago where he says, I just hope I can come up with some little gesture that will catch on uh, while I'm having this moment of, of, of fame. You know, Some little thing. Well, he says there he sits among the smaller fry. Something about this guy uh, causes Neville to distinguish him from the others. And here's what it is about him. He breathes through... uh, There he sits among the smaller fry. He breathes through his straight nose rather heavily. You see, that's a way of saying he's just as as simple and unaffected. That's the point. He's unaffected. He's unaffected. In other words, he doesn't have the disease yet. And I'm... totally taken by him, meaning I've got a rampant case of it, because he doesn't. Because I found somebody who doesn't have my disease. And I'm totally enamored of him. He seems to be free of what's got me by the throat. That is to say, the whole mimetic game. He's just sitting there like this. He's Forrest Gump. It's a holy cow. And then it says his blue and oddly inexpressive eyes, there's Forrest Gump for it, his blue and oddly inexpressive eyes are fixed with pagan indifference on the pillar opposite. He sees nothing, he hears nothing. This is what, you see, for him to be able to sit in a group of other human beings and not have these thoughts racing through his brain about how he's doing compared to them and who's sitting next to who and what does so-and-so think of so-and-so? He doesn't, nothing that's happening to him. And Neville is completely fascinated. He is remote from us all in a pagan universe. And the remoteness has to do with this lack of affectation, the, the fact he's not involved in the mimetic thing. Not outside of it, he becomes the object of all the fascination. And then he says he flicks his hand to the back of his neck. He could have done anything, of course. It didn't matter because once the fascination is there, whatever he does will immediately be imitated. And then he says, for such gestures, one falls hopelessly in love for a lifetime. This is just what Donovan Leash saw. He said, if I can just exhibit that gesture at the right moment when I'm the object of everybody. And what was Donovan Leash trying to do? He was trying to pull off the Rousseau-esque pl- thing, which was ostentatious nonchalance. <laughs> In other words, he was, trying to, he was trying to behave as though he were Percival or, or Forrest Gump, so that those who were hungry for a Percival or Forrest Gump would look to him with that same kind of amazement. And then, having, having attracted those looks, he could perform a gesture which is like flicking the back of his neck and they'd fall in love with him for a lifetime or for 15 minutes. And then he says, Dalton, Jones, Edgar, Bateman flick their hands to the back of their necks, but they do not succeed. They can't. They do it immediately. They're imitating Percival. Everybody is imitating Percival. But Neville knows they're imitating. And what makes him so fascinated by Percival is that it doesn't seem that Percival is imitating anybody. 
to go back to this cartoon, what I find interesting about the cartoon and what we have to think more about is the two, the first and last frame of the cartoon. In the first frame, we're told that the character in the cartoon wants to imitate the very person who doesn't like him. And in the last frame of the cartoon, we're told that the very person who's imitating him is the person he doesn't like. And there's a question here. Is there something going on? Or the question could be this. Why was he disliked by the one whom he emulated, and why did he dislike the one who emulated him? And I would say the one who walks and talks like me is a constant reminder to me of something I am spending a lot of energy trying not to know. And once I know it, the reason I'm trying not to know it, because once I know it, I'm faced with a choice. I either have to give up the game and follow in the, in the footsteps of Augustine in the Confessions, where he saw it for what it was, and he walked away from it, and he said, our hearts are restless until they rest in thee. You know? Or, I continue to play the game, and it leads straight into nihilism. Because, if I see... You see, what I'm saying is, the reason I dislike the one who's imitating me for one reason I dislike him is because obviously he's a slave. You see, he's just an imitator. And the one who I'm imitating thinks the same thing of me if he, ca- if he is careful enough to notice that's what's happening, you see. Uh, so there's that. And then there's also the, f- the fact that those imitators remind those who are succeeding at the game, who are acquiring imitators, it reminds them of how insubstantial the whole thing is. And if we recognize its insubstantiality and don't follow Augustine into a conversion, into a, a renunciation of that whole thing, then we continue to play the game. If you continue to play a game that you know is meaningless, we're people, you know, Carl Jung said, uh, in that 1950s interview with BBC, he said, man cannot stand a meaningless life. You see, we'll put up with anything, but we won't put up with a meaningless life. If I know the game I'm playing is meaningless, I will eventually have to turn that meaning, I will eventually have to make that meaninglessness my meaning, which is nihilism. You see what I'm saying? And that's why I said a couple of weeks ago that nihilism is a religious phenomenon. It's the turning of meaninglessness into religious meaning. Okay. So, now, that's kind of close up on the problem that, that is innocent around us. What I wanted to do today, in part at least, is to... Is to is to have a distant mirror. You know, Barbara Tuckman wrote this book uh, called A Distant Mirror about 20 years ago, which was her study of the 14th century, and it was masterfully titled The Distant Mirror uh, because 
in part what it did is that it gave us a perspective on things in our time by looking at things a long, long time ago. And I would, in, in that vein, I would like to, uh, to have a, a distant mirror. And uh, the distant mirror I want us to take a look at is Alexander the Great. And I do that because uh, Leo Browdy in his book, The, the uh, Frenzy of Renown, has a very interesting section on Alexander the Great. He summarizes some things that are important and shares some things and uh, highlights some uh, things that are worth thinking about. And so I'm going to uh, to go to Browdy's book and his thoughts on the matter and, and see if we can't see in Alexander a distant mirror of, uh, of our own condition. But let me just back up one step here and go back to this business of nihilism as a religious phenomenon, which is the, which is the, the experience of meaninglessness experienced as religious meaning. It sounds absurd, but I think that if you analyze nihilism, that's what it is. At the heart of that, I would say, is of the at the heart of that meaninglessness is a false ontology. The reason it's meaningless, what what's revealed to us, if we happen to be the character in that cartoon, uh, who who realizes that he's imitating. Uh, uh, He's imitating Billy Whittleton's imitation of Herbie Vanderman, etc., etc. What he's realizing when he realizes that is a false ontology. And what is revealed to us when we read about Neville being fascinated by Percival is a false ontology. Unless we would be convinced of the myth that somehow Neville was this truly extraordinary character. Who could be convinced of that anymore? That's those kind of stories, those kind of narratives are harder and harder to come by because they don't hold up. You see. So, the, so at the heart of this is a false ontology, and it's the it's a false it's it's essentially idolatry. Okay. So anyway, so let me go back. Let me go to uh, to Alexander the Great. The first major section in Browdy's book is entitled The Urge to Be Unique. And the most fascinating chapter in that section is entitled The Longing of Alexander. So the urge to be unique and the longing of Alexander as a distant mirror for us in our time. And I said last week what I think are the really lapidary sentences, two sentences from Browdy's thoughts on Alexander the Great. The first is, Alexander deserves to be called the first famous person. Now, Browdy's premise is that fame and the need to, to the interest in the famous, the, the desire to be famous, to, uh, to attract other people's observations and so on, that that's somehow at the heart of the contemporary spiritual crisis. That's his premise. That's why he's writing this book. And that's why he goes back and looks at the history of this thing to see if he can see something developing. So, so he starts with Alexander, and he says Alexander deserves to be called the first famous person. Second sentence, nothing was ever enough for him. 
Now, just that right there. It's to me. It reminds me of the that thing in in Herman Hesse's Magister Ludi. There's a sign over the door which says "Madmen only enter here." Uh, the first famous person, nothing was ever enough for him. This is already in that you see the seeds of nihilism. And then he goes on to say. Alexander remained in the world's imagination not just for the quantity of his achievements but for what was immaterial about them. The unspecifiable spiritual greed that constantly seeks new challenges. Now, the, the, lest I forget it later on, the unspecifiable spiritual greed that constantly seeks new challenges in today's postmodern nihilistic setting, it's the unspecifiable nihilistic need to destroy uh, new taboos to destroy yet another taboo all the taboos are destroyed there are none, none left you know it's a, it's a, the job is done but still since that's, that's such a but anyway I just try to collate those things there a little bit and then Brady goes on to say to many of his early historians Alexander's urges and this is where we have to bring, shed some light. What is driving this man? This is the question. This is the historical question historians always ask. What was the burr under his saddle? You know, what was, what was compelling this man? He conquered the world. Alexander's an interesting figure because um, he literally conquered the world. And uh, geographically, it's quite astounding what he did. And he died at 33. So he's a kind of... He, he makes a nice uh, juxtaposition uh, with the, the one we Christians uh, try to... Who, example, the example of the one we Christians try to follow who died at 33 as a, as, a, uh, as a reject. So the question is, where is this drive, this, this uh, incredible appetite that Alexander had for conquering the world. Nothing was ever enough for him. You never get enough of what you really don't want. That's the, one of the great pieces of wisdom of all time. And, and uh, that's especially true when it comes to the whole ontological crisis. We are restless until we rest in thee. You never get enough of what you really don't want. That's what's happening. So it's right there in, what, in the person whom Brady calls the first famous person. And all the historians who look at Alexander are totally marvel because they don't see the mimetic dynamic at all. And so what they see is this incredible... So what they see is this incredibly dynamic person, but they don't see the, the connecting things. So, for example, Brady says, to many of his early historians, his urges were almost mystical, which is... Which is what these urges are, in a way, that's what they were to Freud and Jung. They were almost mystical, these urges, you know, because they didn't see the mimetic process. To many of his early historians, his urges were almost mystical, welling up from his inmost being. And I want to bring, come back to this business of inmost being today. Welling up from his inmost being. Arian, a Roman military governor who wrote 500 years later but is still our best general source for Alexander's career. I'm quoting from Browdy. 
Arian called the urge pothos, the word, Greek word for longing, one of the Greek terms for sexual desire. Whenever Alexander does what Arian cannot explain, he says it is due to his longing, his pothos. Now this is, it's, this is reminiscent of Freud, isn't it? It's, it's like calling it eros. It's the same thing. It's calling it eros, you see. What is this incredible desire? It's desire. It's desire. In a, fundamentally, it's a desire in a, in a, in a Girardian sense. But, but uh, the big difference is that for Arian and others, this pothos, this longing, came out of Alexander himself, had no other source than something in him. This is what made him so unique because it was totally in him. Perhaps it's worth saying that Paul, writing in between Alexander and, and when uh, Arian is trying to think about Alexander's career, talked about desire using another Greek word, epithumia. And Paul saw desire as an entanglement with the desires of others. And he warned against it. And he used the word that's probably more helpful, I don't know the, you know, the history of the word pothos, uh, but the word epithumia, thumos, which is the root of that word, means sacrifice, and it's it's a marvelous etymology because it suggests very clearly that desire, the world of desire, is a world that has at its heart sacrifice. In other words, it creates the kind of psychosocial passions which can only be cleansed from the body politic, so to speak, by sacrifice. And so I think that's quite powerful. But, but in any event, I'm just present that as a kind of backdrop to this thinking about Alexander and his longing. Well, you could say longing too, you know. It, it's desire in, in, in the sense that it's awakened mimetically. But ontologically... It is longing. It's one goes back to Augustine. Our hearts are restless until they rest in Thee. And he's never satisfied with anything. You see, he just he's ready to eat the world alive in order to try to fill this need. Now, all you have to do is change the valence on that from positive to negative to get postmodern nihilism. Willing to eat the world alive in order to fill this need. You see? So, and then Browdy's still referring to the way that Arian uh, talked and thought about Alexander. He says, Pothos is a cause of action that is entirely within Alexander. An endless desire to strive with no specific goal. Now here you have the basics, the basic misrecognition of desire. First of all, that it's within Alexander. The mimetic process is never within. It's always entangled with other. The longing, the metaphysical longing for transcendence is, is truly something that comes out of us. That's something we, we, we are homo religiosus. We are creatures who have that great longing. So that's, that is inherent in us. But to the extent that desire becomes... Uh, 
mediated in our social environment. It's not something that can be analyzed strictly from within. So in a way, we have two, two problems here. The, the internal mediation that occurs when there's no transcendence and the longing for transcendence. And if there's no transcendence, the longing for transcendence has to take place in terms of the, of, you know, the internal mediators. So one has to constantly be conquering more. If, if there's no transcendence, one has to try to absorb more and more of what is horizontal. If there's no vertical, one has to absorb. And, and Alexander took the whole world. Now, I want to, a little bit later on, talk about something, because Browdy brings it up later on in his book, about Tocqueville, uh, uh, Tocqueville's comment about America, which many people feel is still some of the most insightful things ever said about this society said a long time ago by uh, a Frenchman visiting in the 19th century and nevertheless very insightful things and I want to I want to quote that but just to bring something in here this is Browdy paraphrasing Tocqueville Browdy says Tocqueville said that democratic man usually had no lofty ambitions. He just wanted to be first at anything. Well, now compare that. Now, that's way, that's much, much later in his book. But compare that to a pothos is a cause of action that is entirely within Alexander. That's not true. But then an endless desire to strive with no specific goal. Again, we have to go back to St. Paul. It has to do with St. Paul's notion of justification as well. You know, St. Paul says, he's a Pharisee, he says, we, we Pharisees have tried to achieve justification by acts, by, by obeying the law, by being religiously scrupulous, by doing whatever we have to do in order to acquire justification, achieve justification. He says, you can't get there from here. There's no way. It's grace. And it comes from the transcend the relationship to the transcendent God through Christ and not through anything that you can do. And so there's anyway, all I'm saying is there are echoes of the of exactly what Christianity deals with in all in all of this. So I wanna I want to talk about a couple of things in Alexander's life as a distant mirror. And one of them, before we get too far away from from the uh, example of Neville and Percival and the, the uh, Pfeiffer cartoon, is that Alexander, uh, before he launched uh, his campaign against Persia, which was his great military campaign, he went to visit the cynic philosopher Diogenes. You know about this visit. This is one of the most famous episodes in Alexander's life. And he walked over, and, he, and there was... Di now, Diogenes uh, was a, uh, a cynic, by the way, that's a technical philosophical term, not quite the same thing as what we call a cynic in the modern sense, but nevertheless, someone who rejects, uh, who had renounced the whole social s scene as, a, as, a, as false and insubstantial, and who, had, who was a kind of recluse and a naysayer socially, and um, thought that to, to, to getting caught up in that is to be lost. And so Alexander went to see 
Diogenes, which in and of itself is pretty interesting. It's a little bit like Neville looking down the row and seeing, uh, seeing Percival. Because Percival, now, Diogenes was not, uh, he was not a, a dimwit. You know, he was, he was not uh, a sort of jock. Percival turns out to be a kind of unimaginative kind of jock who just isn't onto the mimetic game yet. That's not true of Diogenes. But do you see the parallel I'm trying to suggest here? That when, when uh, Alexander looks around at somebody that might be interesting, he sees what the question is. Did Alexander go to see anybody else ever? No, they all came to see him. Now, you could say this. This is, again, painting with a broad brush. But you could say he only went to see one person. Who did he go to see? He went to see the one person who said that the whole game he was playing was nonsense. And he goes up to Diogenes. He finds him sitting under a tree. You know the story. He stands over him and he says to Diogenes, what can I do for you? And Diogenes says, you can get out of my light. (laughs) And, And here's, I'll read Browdy's comment. The soldiers were horrified, expecting an outburst of Alexander's already famous anger. I'm not even going to read the second sentence here for a second. Already famous anger. These are little tracers we have to pay attention to. This pothos, this longing, which is a longing with, for, that is never satisfied for no specific goal, uh, is in one sense the longing for the transcendent, we are restless until we rest in thee. In another sense, it's the, it's the mimetic entanglement that can never be satisfied. To the extent that it's mimetic entanglement, or to the extent that, well, it's really both, because it's the attempt to achieve some kind of ontological status other than by a true, truly transcendent uh, point of reference. So it's, in, it's a this-world solution to the ontological problem. There are no this-world solutions to the ontological problem. We should, we should make a big banner saying that and put it up someplace very high and very big. There are no this-world solutions to the ontological problem. Well, to try to solve that problem in terms of, quote, this world. You know what I mean by this world. I don't mean one can't... I mean the lacking transcendence is what I mean. To try to solve that ontological problem in terms of this world is to be... is to... is a recipe for anger or what Nietzsche calls resentment or what Homer calls mentis, wrath. Homer begins the Iliad by saying, uh, this is a story of wrath. And what's it a story of? It's a story of a mimetic entanglement between the Greeks and the Trojans, between Menelaus and, and uh, Paris, between uh, Achilles and Agamemnon. It's the whole mimetic entanglement. And what does it produce? Wrath. You see? Resentiment, anger. So his already famous anger is what I'm trying to get to here. This is a way of, it's like having a little barometer stuck into the situation. Now here's a man who's in the process of conquering the world and has found no, nothing to thwart him so far. And the last major obstacle is the Persian Empire. And he's about to or leap that particular 
obstacle. And nevertheless, his famous anger. See, there you have it. Now, all you have to do is do a little flip with it and you get postmodern nihilism. You see what I'm saying? The famous anger. It's another version of it. But it's not one... Well, anyway, so, so here's the whole quotation from Browdy. The soldiers were horrified, expecting an outburst of Alexander's already famous anger. But Alexander just laughed and remarked that if he were not Alexander, he would like to be Diogenes. <laughs> now, now think for a second about the Pfeiffer cartoon. The, the one that I'm emulating is the one that doesn't like me. And the one that emulates me is the one I don't like. Alexander met someone who was, first of all, he was attracted to Diogenes because Diogenes was attempting the same thing Alexander was attempting, namely to be free of it. Alexander was going to be free of it by controlling it, by, by being in charge of it, by having power over it. And Diogenes was going to be free of it by walking away from it. Each became, to, some, to the extent that you can in that kind of world, singular. You see what I mean? They recognized each other. When Diogenes shows that he's not under Alexander's control, there's a little hint of envy on the part of Alexander. Oh, if I wasn't me, if I wasn't doing this version of it, I would do your version of it. Because you, I mean, after all, think of Alexander. He, Alexander, uh, one could no doubt have said of Alexander, even though he was a, he was not a, he was not a stupid guy. He had Aristotle for a tutor. Of course, if you have Philip of Macedonia for a father, you can have Aristotle for a tutor. But still, <laughs> you know, he didn't have to pass the SAT or anything. But nevertheless, he was not a stupid guy. He was a well-read guy, and he, he, so I'm not trying to say that. But think of what might have been going through Alexander's head at that moment, which was, hey, he didn't come see me. I came to see him. And when I got here, he didn't roll out the red carpet. He told me to get out of, this, get out of his sunlight. You see? So... Who's really free of this? You see? And then he says, if I wasn't Alexander, I'd be at Diogenes. Well, let's remember this is before Christ. And, but you have there this impulse for con towards conversion. Now, not that Diogenes represents real conversion by any stretch of the imagination, but he at least recognizes something about the social order that's that if you get totally caught up in it, is uh, is enslaving. And so here, when Alexander says, "If I wasn't doing this, I'd be Diogenes," it's a it's a it's a it's a it's a crack in the in the structure when he sees its insubstantiality, and he sees that Diogenes is freer than he is. On the other hand, Diogenes. One wonders what was going through Diogenes' head. Surely what was going through Diogenes' head was, you know what? I just told the most powerful guy in the world to get out of my light. 
<laughs> no doubt, no doubt that was going through his head. Anyway, here's what Browdy says. If Alexander could not stay out of the sun, meaning out of Diogenes' light, <clears throat> he might strive instead to become the sun to others. All his visual representations take something from the iconography of Helios, the sun god. Like Diogenes, and see, so Browdy sees they're, that they're really twins of each other. Like Diogenes, the philosopher who rejected the corruption of human society to live outside of it, Alexander was bent on defying any order that he had not created himself. Now, in terms of a distant mirror, one thinks of the determination to deny any order that one has not created oneself, which is so modern. It's part of the modern temperament. I con Constitutionally, as a matter of principle, do not defer to anything that I have not scrutinized and found acceptable according to my judgment. You see what I mean? This goes back to Kierkegaard saying, when a, when a, he did it in terms of sons and fathers, he says, when a son obeys a father, because his father is wise, he knows nothing about obedience. You see what I mean? Because it means that he's just made this determination that he's wise and therefore I'll obey him, which is not the same thing as obedience. Well, anyway, I, I digress, of course, but uh, the point is that Alexander here is exhibiting, in a very brazen way, something that's now been totally democratized. And the question is, does it have something to do with the fact that the same disease he has is the disease we have? 